If you're staying in the service, we will read from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, in your own Bible, or just listen to me read, this is the third servant song of Isaiah, the first part of it. We'll look at today, finish next week. This is uh, one of the songs that Isaiah recorded that all talk about the servant of the Lord, this mysterious figure that, of course, we know to be Jesus Christ. Isaiah 50, verse 4 and following. And this is Jesus speaking. This is the servant speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not, back, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is God's word. Now, I hope that this sermon is very practical to all of us. As Jesus speaks, he reveals himself, presents himself as a model for his followers. For example, verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. And he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now, it can be translated, and maybe it is translated in your Bibles, as the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. And he awakens my ear to hear as a disciple. It's the same word. Of course, the New Testament frequently refers to Christians as disciples of Jesus or learners or apprentices of Jesus. And here, Jesus pulls back the curtain on his own life of discipleship. What we're seeing in this, in this song is actually Jesus presenting himself as a model disciple for us to, to imitate, for us to use his example. Now, of course, we know that in his divinity, Jesus has nothing to learn. He's not following anybody. He's the Lord, creator, and sustainer of all that exists. But in his humanity, remarkably, Jesus lived a life of communication with the Father and dependence on the Spirit, which is exactly the kind of life he wants us to live. When he was on earth, he modeled the life with God for us. This is what we want to explore this morning. This passage highlights four aspects of our discipleship. Listening to God's Word, speaking God's Word, obeying God's Word, and finally trusting God's Word. And if you want a different outline, we can look at a disciple's ear, a disciple's tongue, a disciple's face, and a disciple's heart. So look at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. 
Jesus speaking. He says, morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught, as the disciples. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Jesus listened to God's word. I mean, have you, have you considered that Jesus in his earthly life read and memorized and meditated on the Bible? Jesus listened to his Father in prayer. This was regular, normal part of his life. He intentionally pursued God's word. He listened. He heard God's word. Now, Jesus quoted the Old Testament about a hundred times as recorded in the Gospels. So about one-tenth of what Jesus said, as it is recorded in the four Gospels, were quotes from the Old Testament. So you can see how it was constantly on his mind. This was something he was processing and thinking through and reacting to. Jesus knew why he came and what was going to happen to him because he read and understood the biblical prophecies. I mean, in his humanity, Jesus had to learn, and he actually had to understand the Scriptures, and he had to relate those Scriptures to to himself. One author said that that made his life a perpetual Gethsemane. He was constantly thinking about what is to come, what his mission is, what's going to happen to him, why he came. As a model disciple... Jesus habitually listened to God's Word. And that becomes a model for us, of course. One commentator says, It is the Lord who takes the initiative, rousing His servant for the morning fellowship. The Word of God is central to it. The objective is to convey truth through the ear to the mind. And this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. The morning watch is not a special provision for a unique servant. It is the standard curriculum for all who would be disciples. Jesus models this this fellowship with the Father. Morning by morning, the Lord awakened him and he communed with the Father. Morning by morning, he listened to God's words. And so we as his disciples, we too listen to God's word. Disciples commune with God. Disciples establish habits of listening to God. Disciples know the voice of God. This is is part of our Christian life. It has to be. It has to be. It was central to Jesus. He listened to his father. He set time aside to understand to meditate, to memorize in Scripture, and so must we. It's an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus, is living like Him, listening to God. On January 17, 1994, the city of Los Angeles experienced a 6.7 magnitude earthquake. The north part of the city lost all power, and so in the early hours of that winter morning, about 2 million people found themselves in darkness. Predictably, many people called 911. Unpredictably, numerous callers reported a mysterious substance in the dark sky. There was a giant silvery cloud hanging over the city. 
some people said. Some suspected an alien invasion. In fact, what the people were seeing was the Milky Way. Because the sky above Los Angeles is always illuminated by the city's artificial lights, most residents have never seen the Milky Way. Something that billions of people through the generations have found to be a familiar and comforting sight was completely surprising and unnerving to most people in L.A. Many Christians live without reading the Bible. Many Christians don't know what God says. So when Clifton prayed that we would refuse to believe thoughts about God that are not true, right? How do you know if that thought isn't true? If you don't know the scriptures, if you are not listening to God's word, you don't know what's true. Many Christians are much more influenced by all sorts of other voices than God's voice. And like the residents of L.A., they can only see the artificial lights of the world. And that blinds them to the sight of God. And when God speaks, they don't know it's God. And their response is, new phone, who this, right? I had to throw something in for... for You know when you get a text from somebody you don't know, right? When God speaks to many of us, we don't know it's God. We don't recognize His voice. We don't know what to do with Him. Because we're not used to listening to Him. See, it's when you listen to God, you eventually begin to discern His voice. And you learn to know when He speaks, to know that it's Him. And he would bring to your mind all sorts of things that you had learned before, that he had said before. And you would connect the dots and you would figure a lot of stuff out. But if you're not listening to him, when he speaks, you don't know it's him. Immerse yourself in God's word. If you are a Christian who is not regularly, habitually, and deeply interacting with God's word... You need to change that, and you need to change that right now. You don't have the luxury of time. Because if you're not listening to his voice, you are listening to all sorts of other voices. So you need to correct it. You need to start listening to God. You cannot follow Jesus if you do not listen to his voice. If you are his sheep... You know his voice, you listen, you obey. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's listening to his words, it's listening to his voice and and responding to him. Now here's a simple way to begin. If you're not in a habit of regular Bible reading and prayer, here's a simple way to begin because I want to be specific. Set aside time each morning to read one chapter of the Bible and pray. This, This is not... There's nothing complicated about this. Just figure out what time in the morning you can spend. It's probably going to take you 10, 15 minutes to start with, maybe. Read one chapter of the Bible and pray. Pray for your day. If you don't know where to start, start in the Gospel of John. 
I'm going to leave you no ambiguity here, okay? So if you're wondering, what can I do? Gospel of John, tomorrow, chapter 1. You get up in the morning, you read it, and then you pray. And as you read it, you ask, what is God saying here? What am I reading? What does he want me to learn about him? What does this, this chapter reveal about him? You're always looking for him. You're always looking to learn about him. But what does it also reveal about me? Is there something here for me? Is he saying something about me? Do I need to respond in a certain way? Is there something that needs to be changed in my life? So you respond with obedience. As you read the Bible, you will become a more faithful disciple. If you don't read the Bible, you will not learn more about him. You will not learn how to live more closely with him. You have to hear his word. Jesus did that. He's the model. Morning by morning, Jesus entered into that communion with God. And he learned and he listened. The Father talked to him and he talked to the Father. And we should do the same. Now that's the ear of the disciple, always listening for God's word. Then there's the disciple's tongue. Now go back to verse 4. Jesus says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, or the tongue of the disciples, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. When Jesus listened to God's word, because of that, because he was listening, he was able to speak. He was able to speak words that sustain those who are weary. So right away, you're seeing that connection, right? We listen and then we speak. As the Lord speaks to us, we speak to others. That's what Jesus did. He sustained those who are weary with a word. Now that word weary is used in Scripture to describe those who faint from a long journey or those who are exhausted from fighting a battle. And Jesus knew exactly how to speak to the weary in a way that encouraged and sustained them. You know, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus speaks to you in your weariness in your exhaustion, in your struggle. And he speaks exactly in the way that you need to hear from him so you would be sustained, so you could continue, so you could be encouraged. Now think about Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John 4 when he offered, offered to her the living water of God's grace. I mean, that, that's exactly what she needed. Of course, this weary woman seeking for meaning and identity in all these relationships, outcasting her own community. And here comes Jesus and welcomes her and says, I can give you water that if you drink it, you won't ever thirst again. That's what she needed. And Jesus knew how to sustain her. Now think about Jesus restoring Peter after the resurrection. Peter had denied him. Jesus meets him. And what does he say? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I mean, that, that was a word for him. That's not a word for me, maybe, or you, but it is a word for him. What about Jesus speaking to Mary Magdalene in the garden? This distraught woman who lost her, her best friend. She doesn't know where the body is. She's grieving. She's hurting. She can't even see straight. <laughs> and Jesus comes... And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then he just says, Mary. 
And that was enough. That was enough for her. That was the word that needed, needed by her to be sustained in her weariness, in her exhaustion, in her doubt, in her struggle. Now, of course, we, we know if we're following Jesus, this is how he speaks to us. The reason he speaks like that is because he hears words from the Father. Because our Savior hears the Father and he speaks to us. Now, Jesus says that everything he came to say was fr from God. It was from the Father. And so he served at that conduit of grace. And whoever he encountered, he was able to speak in a way that sustained that person. Augustine famously said, I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings that are wise and very beautiful. But I have never read in either of them, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. <laughs> Lots of beautiful words out there. There are people who are so gifted in language. And yet, you will not find any one of them offering you real rest. And speaking into your weariness the way Jesus can. Because those are not human words. They're special words. They're divine words to us. Disciples must speak God's word. Disciples that listen to God know how to speak to someone who is weary. Because we ourselves hear God's sustaining words in our own weariness. And then we pass it on to others. And we live in a culture that is craving words of wisdom and comfort. People turn to all sorts of people, right? Life coaches, therapists, inspirational speakers, celebrities, podcasts, memes, I mean, whatever, right? Looking for words, looking for something to encourage them, looking for something to make sense of their weariness, to explain why they're weary, and to show them a way forward. Now, I think a lot of those other people are very helpful. But no one can be more helpful than a Christian that listens to God. That's a different level of help. That's a different level of encouragement. And it's best when Christians go into those professions and go into those fields where they don't just offer human wisdom and human skill, but they also offer divine wisdom and divine skill. Are you a Christian who hears God's words and knows how to sustain the weary people in your life with a fitting word? Do others in your office or in your school or in your neighborhood come to you for advice and encouragement because they know that you can speak in the way that others can't? Humbly, but with clarity and authority and wisdom that comes from somewhere else? Do you take opportunities to pass along something that you hear from God? Because God is speaking to you. And if you're listening, there's lots to share with others. There are Christians who hear God's word, but they don't speak. There are Christians who don't listen to God's word, but speak anyway. And there are Christians who neither listen nor speak. But true disciples hear the word and speak it skillfully to others. I mean, isn't that what friendship is or meant to be? Isn't that what evangelism is? Isn't that what mentoring is? Isn't it just passing along the words that God gave us to others and trusting that those words work 
that they bring life, that they connect people to God, that they become conduits of his grace and healing and encouragement in their lives. So be a Christian that listens, yes, listens to God's words and appropriates that, but also then shares them, takes opportunities to sustain others with the word of grace. As we hear and as we speak, the next step is to obey what we hear. We need to obey. And as a model disciple, Jesus listened and he spoke and then he obeyed God's word. Even though for him it meant rejection and suffering. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. That's the posture of obedience. When God speaks, I'm ready to obey, Jesus says. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus fulfilled his father's mission. And because he was unwilling to compromise the message of the gospel of grace, he was humiliated, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was slandered, he was railroaded, and eventually put to death. Knowing, living in that perpetual Gethsemane, right, knowing what it takes for him to to obey the Father, he nonetheless remained obedient. Now there's a lot of connections with the New Testament in in this passage of Isaiah. And as you read the Bible, by the way, as you read the Bible, you will see all sorts of connections in Scripture. You will see how a New Testament author is interacting with an Old Testament text. You will see allusions and parallels and themes. It actually is really exciting to see that. But here, for example, we see a connection with Luke 9.51. Luke says, when the days drew near for him, talking about Jesus, to be taken up, meaning when, when things are, are, are approaching that time when Jesus was going to be crucified and risen, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. Now that's an idiom, but it connects us to Isaiah. It's actually a beautiful picture, right, of Jesus just turning his face towards Jerusalem, knowing all that is to come. In obedience to God's word, he turns his face and he sets his face in that direction. And he's not going to go a different way. He's not going to try to avoid it. He's going to do what the Lord tells him to do. Isaiah says, he set his face like a flint. Just this, this hard rock. His was rock solid, rock hard, flint faced obedience to the word of God. That's Jesus, the model disciple. And that's a model for us. That's an example for us. It's not enough just to know what God says or even to pass it on to someone else. We must obey what God says. We too must be flint-faced in our obedience. Set our face to obey God. Whatever it is, whatever it costs, whatever is going to come, whether you know it or not, our face should be like a flint set to obey our God. Now, how, how easy it is, it is for us to find a reason not to obey. Now, I'm not sure if you struggle with obedience as, as I do, but I find myself frequently convincing myself to obey God. It's like an ongoing inner dialogue in my mind. 
I quote scripture to myself. I remind myself of the gospel. I pray for the Spirit's help. All to convince myself that obedience is worth it. I remember a specific time when, when Polina was born in Ukraine. Jelena was in the hospital for three weeks with her. It's a traumatic birth followed by the diagnosis of Down syndrome, a series of medical issues. And it happened during Lent. And so I've, you know, as I do every year, I've made certain commitments to the Lord for that season of Lent. And I remember walking around the, the hospital outside, taking walks in the evening, and wrestling in my heart and, and, and thinking, well, if there's a reason to, to, to disobey, <laughs> there's a reason to give up on some of these commitments I made, this seems like the right time. You know, we're in crisis, it's trauma, we don't know what to do. But it was my flesh talking, wasn't it? The Spirit at the same time was actually using my Lenten commitments to sustain me through that time. But my perspective was completely twisted, thinking, well, you know, I don't really need to push myself too hard right now. But in reality, God had already set in motion those things, and He was preparing me through that season. And He was sustaining me with a word in my weariness. We need to pray for the Lord to cultivate in us Jesus-like flint-faced obedience because disciples obey God's Word. Now, I'll give you this illustration speaking about Polina. Polly reads the Bible on her phone, so she hears the Bible a chapter at a time every day. And so she was reading. Well, I first I, I heard Polly's very distinct piercing voice from from the next room. <clears throat> I'm sure you're familiar with that experience. And I heard her singing, and she was singing, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. I was like, what, what is happening? And then I realized she was reading, and she was reading Acts 16, and in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in prison, and they were praising God. They were singing, right? And Polly thought, well, <laughs> seems like I should sing, right? <laughs> she read something and she immediately obeyed it. I mean, what, what a, just a great reminder of the simplicity of our walk with Jesus. When he tells us something, we should just, we should just do it, right? You read something and you just, you just do it. And we, are, we encourage each other by doing that. I was greatly encouraged by Polina and and. We need to be encouraging each other by our obedience. Saying, I read this, the Lord said, and I'm doing it. Flint-faced obedience. I'm, I'm, I set my face, and this is where I'm going, and this, this is what I'm doing. I mean, yes, I'm talking about very simple things, right? But these are the essential things of discipleship. It's hearing the word, right? It's passing that word along, but it's obeying that word. In childlike simplicity, hearing and obeying and doing what the Lord wants us to do. And finally, a disciple's heart. We see that Jesus trusted God's word. He listened. He spoke. He obeyed. But he trusted God's word. His heart was resting in God. And this is our model for discipleship, especially when it's hard or painful to follow Jesus. Now look at verses 7 through 9. But the Lord helps me. 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Now the passage envisions a court scene. So the language is legal language of when you go to court and there's adversaries and there's advocates and there's a trying to figure out what the truth is here, who's guilty, who's not. And of course, Jesus went through it. He actually went through an experience like that. He was in court, right? He was accused, he was condemned, he was sentenced. But through all this, Jesus is saying that this is temporary defeat. But I am trusting God who will vindicate me. Jesus is accused, judged, sentenced by the world. But God vindicates him. This disgrace, this humiliation, it's, it's transient. And in the end, Jesus knows that he will be exalted, he will be vindicated. And all his adversaries will wear themselves out. And their opposition will disintegrate like moth eating clothing. I don't know how much experience you've had with moths. I, I, you can ask my mom about it. I mean, like, I feel like all my childhood were defending our, our clothes against the moth. You know, you just lose, like you, you get a sweater out and there's like giant holes in the sweater, you know. I'm not even talking about fur coats. That's the real prize for the moth. But if you experience that, there's, it's, it's disintegration. It's something that just comes from, from outside and very quietly just just destroys it. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen with all these accusations, with all this rejection, with anybody who opposes God. And of course, it did happen with Jesus. He died, accused by the world, he died, but then he rose again. And he ascended to rule at the right hand of the Father. He is vindicated by God. So whatever the chief priest said, whatever Pilate decided, whatever the Roman soldiers did to him, in the end, God raised him up. And God exalted him and God vindicated him. Just as God said, and Jesus knew he could trust him. He could trust that that's how it was going to happen. That going through that experience, going through the court scenes and going through the accusations, on the other side of it was exaltation and vindication by God. And that's our fate too. <coughs> Much of our life in this world is rejection and suffering. But friends, we too will be vindicated. 1 John 2 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what Isaiah says as well. He says, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Those who persist in sin and refuse to listen and obey the word of the Savior will eventually be consumed by their sin. The sin is not dormant. It's not a neutral thing. It's an attacker. Sin will eat them up from within. There's a sort of a self-destruction that happens with sin. 
And then from without, in God's judgment, they will bear the penalty of sin. But the word of the Lord and those who trust that word will remain. It's, it's a question of permanency versus transiency. We come against the transient world and we get hurt, yes. But we are the permanent ones. We are the stable ones. We will persevere. We'll break through and we'll be okay. And we will be vindicated by God himself. We can either be sustained in our weariness by his word. Or our sins will wear us out completely. Those are the two ways. The word of God always prevails in the end. It will prevail in judgment over those who reject it. It will. Or it will prevail in grace and forgiveness and freedom and vindication for those who trust it. 1 Peter 1 says, All flesh is like grass. Sounds familiar, right? In all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The world is, you know, it's flowers and grass. It's seasonal at best. But the word is constant, it's permanent, and it will prevail. Which is why it's so important to listen to it and to speak it and to obey it because you're dealing with something permanent. Now then Peter adds at the end of that passage that is very familiar to us because we say it most Sundays. He says, and this word, this word that, that prevails, this word that endures, this word we are to trust, he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. He's saying, this is the gospel. The word is the gospel. The gospel prevails. This, this gospel, this word about Jesus, this word that Jesus preached, this word of comfort for those who are weary. Now, what is it? What's the message? Well, the message is that the master became a disciple, that Jesus, God, came into our world, and he became human, and he was weary, and he got worn out. And he got rejected, and he got accused, and eventually he got put on the cross, and he died. But through his death, all the weary ones receive comfort. And all those who, who, who've learned that you can't trust the world, you can't trust the flesh, have found another person to trust. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came, and he followed the Father, and he did everything right, and he obeyed. And because he obeyed, even unto death, we now have a new life. And in that new life, there's God's word, there's real obedience, there's real joy, and there's real hope that through it all, eventually, we will be vindicated. Disciples trust God's word. Now, this Isaiah passage must sound very similar to you if you read the Bible. Because this court scene, scene repeats itself in Romans 8. And that's one of the more comforting passages for the Christian. Much like the servant sings in our song in Isaiah 50, Paul speaks in Romans 8, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> what are these things? Everything that's going, coming against you in the world. Everything that's wrong with the world, all the sin and all the flesh and all the worldly stuff and all the devil's temptations. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if God is for you, if you heard his word, and his word is that you're his, 
that he's claimed you, that in Jesus you belong to him. And if you heard that and you know that God is for you, who can be against us? Who in the right mind would say there's an enemy greater than God? And if you've reconciled with him, there's no one else who can really hurt you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Try to break that logic. If God gave you the most perfect, beautiful possession that he has, if he gave you his own son and the son died for you, why would he withhold anything good from you? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? If God justifies, if God has declared you not guilty, who can condemn you? Now, I know there are voices of condemnation in our hearts. I know that. But how can those voices be stronger and louder than the voice of God himself who justifies you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, what do you have to fear if the Lord himself is interceding for you, who already went through death, who was raised already and has ascended into heaven, and he is for you now, he is advocating for you? What else is there? You know, in Hebrews where it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, that enigmatic passage, right? Somehow Jesus was perfected through suffering. He was made perfect. I wonder if that means that he was made perfect for us, that he was made perfect so we can trust him. Because he suffered, he has become a perfect, trustworthy Savior. So we can go to him knowing that he went through all this, knowing that he knows exactly what we're feeling. And we can trust him that through his death, there is a resurrection. Through our suffering, there is vindication. And that eventually... Because of our trust in that word, in that gospel, we too will be exalted and live with him forever. So be a disciple. Be a follower of Christ. Listen to his word. Speak it to others. Obey it and trust it. Trust his promises in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian and all of that just sounds strange to you, it's okay. It's supposed to sound strange to you because you don't know it. You you haven't experienced it, but you can. If you go to Jesus, you can actually experience it. You will find a shepherd. You will find a sustainer in your weariness. You will find a forgiver of your guilt. And you will find real hope. So come to him. And if if you are a Christian, we're going to come to the table. And we celebrate this word. We celebrate that Jesus came. The master became a disciple for us so we can become his disciples and masters of our sin and shame and guilt.